and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I am really delighted to have Colonel Stuart Tootle. And Stuart has had a fascinating career. When we look in people who've been in the military and business, he's picked some gems. Um, Not only was he uh, a very successful officer in the Queensland Highlanders, but he then went on to do a a secondment, get his parachute wings with the parachute regiment, uh, served with one power as a company commander, and then got the prestigious role to go to three para at the time when its image had been a bit tarnished and he was able to turn that around. But not only that, he was able to take them to Afghanistan into uh, one of the op herricks, I think it was called, in 2006, which turned out to be a battle that was probably of the uh, severity and scale of the Korean War. We hadn't had anything of that scale. And it was a peace support operation that John Reed kindly sent him into saying there was going to be not a shot fired. He also was military assistant to military assistant to the chief of defence staff, uh, General David Richards, now Lord Richards. And uh, he's a fascinating man as well. Without further ado, I'll introduce our guest. Stuart, tell us a bit more about what you're doing now. Jonathan, good uh, good morning. Good to see you. Um, so now, uh, well, I left the army in 2008 and spent 10 years working for uh, Barclays, where I held a global role there. More support operated than money making, but uh, it kept me pretty busy. A, a big learning curve of going from a combat orientated organization to a corporate commercial one. Um, and then I left Barclays after 10 years and I now set up my own consultancy, which is focused around leadership decision making is probably the, the, the core theme. And um, and I write the occasional book. Um, I've just started my fifth uh, with Penguin, which you know comes out in September, which is a with fascinating story about a 101 year old uh, last. He's the last veteran who jumped with the powers at Arnhem. So uh, yeah, so that that keeps me pretty busy. That's that's really good. And and by the way, um, it was our thanks go to Corporal Splash Ashton, uh, SAS, who um, you wrote a book with Splash. Uh, which is called SAS Seeking Down. And he featured in one of the podcasts just uh, recently. I don't think it's come out quite yet, but a fascinating man, very modest, very understated. And I said to him, who do you find inspiring? Who who do you think you should have as your guest, Splash? And he said, Stuart. And so, Stuart, you're here. And, and this is the kind of guest I like having. I like having, and 95% of the guests are like this, that others who are inspiring, who people have told me that this person's inspiring, get them on the podcast, recommended you. And, and I think your book, Danger Close, which I've just finished listening to, uh, a fantastic account of three para in uh, a war in Afghanistan, which would stretch any leader. And I think if you're a leader listening to this, particularly if you've not been in the military, even if you've been in the military, it's a great uh, read or a great listen just the scale of the challenge that you have and the humility that you had of realizing, even though the Paris have a reputation of being big and bold and ballsy, 
that that you realized there were a lot of moments where you thought, I just, this is just overwhelming. What do I do in this circumstance? And having to make decisions under pressure. If any leaders, I had a leader the other day and she said, one of her teams said to me, my team are terribly overstretched. They're about to break. And, and you know, they don't know what priorities to do. And she said, to, to, as a female leader said to one of the male leaders, well, look, that's your issue. You should help them learn how to prioritize the work they do. They're not in war. No one's dying. They can make decisions. Let them make it. But you had a situation, Stuart, where you were in that situation and you were in war. What's the lasting impression that you'd pass on to people who are in business about having been in a war? Uh, Well, I'd say so. my top tip would be, I mean, you talk about leadership and it's it's a, a wide-ranging subject. So if I was going to boil it down to saying that leaders, whether it's in the combat world or the commercial world, need a decision-making framework, which is about critical, disciplined thinking, decision-making, agile planning, and empowered execution. And it needs to be a framework which is repeatable and scalable, because while it's very important to a leader, and leadership is often and probably most importantly about making decisions, just that little story you gave, it's got to be cascadable down to all the leaders who are reporting into you. If you really want to empower them, if they can't make decisions, cannot prioritise, if they cannot plan, then they're not very good to you. So having that decision-making, planning, execution framework is absolutely critical. And we'll talk about that in a minute. I just, while we're with it, I want to stay with this topic just for now. The, the mnemonic that you have, which I'll get you to explain in a minute why it's important, Maka. Um, but it was an interesting one that in business, I'm finding many of the CEOs that I work with, and then we do offsites with their teams, the CEO believes that he or she should be the smartest man or woman in the room and that they have to have this phenomenal zen-like ability to make decisions and to get into the decision-making of everybody else. Now, great books, Turn the Ship Around, Leadership's Language, really, uh, and I've got an Australian submarine commander coming on shortly who, who again, talks about this whole idea of decision-making and and decision-making to the lowest possible level with decision evaluation done by the CEO. But many of them got to the top and thought what got them there, they just carried on doing the same. But what got you here won't get you there is that famous saying from Marshall Goldsmith, who trained me in America. And they forget that. And they think they have to make all the decisions. So what happens is everybody else upward delegates to them and they infantilize the people below them who wait for the boss, the CEO, to make a decision. Or, well, what, what does the CEO think? And they try and second guess what the CEO will think rather than have the courage to do it. Have you... Do you do you see that in your own work? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, hu- human behavioral science will tell you that human beings are very poor and very fragile decision makers because they don't have a framework. So decision making is subject to all those random biases, cognitive dissonance, anchoring, groupthink, etc. So you need a process which is agile, which can actually break through that. And 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 you talk about you know, thinking you know all the answers as a leader. I didn't in three power. I mean, there was a shed load of things I did not know. And I needed information from my planning team and my directs. And then I had to empower them. So even though I could 
be probably quite clear and say, this is the effect I think we need to achieve. The what and the why, what resources we've got, how we achieve it. You guys have got to help me decide that. And in fact, and sometimes you have to decide it because you're on the front line. You're seeing things. You don't have time to talk to me. I don't have time to talk to you because I'm you know, operating a battle space, 40,000 square kilometers of hostile terrain with nine to 10 different independent units. Um, well, I say independent. They're all pretty dependent on me as the leader. But I can't be with all of them at any one time. And with all the crisis points we faced often, any one of which could consume my leadership focus in its entirety, I couldn't be in more than any one place at any one time. That was my perhaps biggest leadership challenge. So I had to delegate. I had to empower. And the military has this wonderful leadership philosophy called mission command, which is all about empowering your directs by giving them clear direction and then giving them the latitude, having skilled and trained them, to operate within your strategic intent, but being willing to pivot or seize fleeting windows of opportunity that you can't possibly see sitting in your headquarters. And that's that's mm. the real empowerment piece. But in order to do that, it goes back to the top tip, you've got to have a decision-making, planning, execution framework. And that is great. And in a moment, I'll get you to explain uh, MACA and, and, and why it's a useful framework. Just just give us a, a high level, because clearly it, it's worthy of a, of a further um, talk in itself. But the other thing which struck me during your time in Hellman, th there was, you know, days on end where you were in combat all the time. And certainly the people in your outposts in Musalkala and Sangin attack after attack by the Taliban, no let up and no relief. I mean, sometimes the guys were without rations for a number of days. Uh, the Pathfinders and others were with, you know, without rations for a number of days until they could get relief and they get exhausted and they wouldn't have the chance to sleep because of the crack and thump of 107 millimeter uh, rockets coming into them and all sorts of stuff. So in those conditions, the decision-making is even more stressed because you're so exhausted. And, it, and you know, research shows that when we have a lack of sleep, it's almost like we are driving drunk. You just can't do it. You can't think well and you become indecisive. So I think the point you're making is even more important because many of the leaders I work with, only a few of them really look after their eat, move, sleep, breathe, focus, prosper, kind of that particularly the sleep and the the health and the exercise. And you and I both trained this morning as getting, you know, keeping that exercise in helps us to be business athletes. What's your view about the lack of sleep, not only just on operations and in training, but also in business? Yeah, it's a really good question because people don't get enough sleep, certainly not in the field. I mean, we were lucky over six, seven months, whether we were, getting two to three hours sleep a night. And, and sometimes we went three, four days without any sleep. And all levels, everyone working incredibly hard. Again, it comes back to the, you've got to have a framework. You've got to have a handrail. Um, I found myself, and you know, I've always said this, you know, often driven by self-doubt with this huge span of responsibility and, and people's lives literally in my hands. And I was exhausted for most of the time, under pressure. And I remember... Often, not another decision I have to make when something went wrong or we had an ambush or a helicopter nearly got shot down um, despite our best efforts and planning. No plan stands 
first contact with the realities on the ground. Yeah, it's a military maxim. So you're in that mindset, the stuff goes wrong. You're in the mindset that you're going to get tired. So you've got to have these handrails. You know, what do I do? What do pilots do when planes get into trouble? They'll follow an operating procedure. And it's agile and you've got to be able to truncate it and shorten it. Of course you have. But if you have your decision-making cycle, and not only you are using it, but other people are using it, people would come to me and say, we need to make a decision on the following. But they had probably already workshopped it through the decision-making cycle. So it was more than half-baked when it came to me. I could see their logic, knew they'd thought about it. I might just say, you got it do it. I might turn around and say, I need to think about that a bit more. But what they weren't doing, and I just find this in Barclays, man of fire drills in the corporate world, people would come into my office and I'd have to fight to get the information I critically needed. And I worked really hard and then trained my team and I had a brilliant team and got a large team, two and a half thousand people across 55 countries. But actually the directs got really good at coming in and saying, Stuart, here's the issue. Here's my recommendation of how we resolve it. Here are the two or three options I've thought about it, advantages, disadvantages, and here are any critical factors, including what I need you to do to help me with this problem and what the time factor is. And that allowed me to just get it and respond. That is really good. And I think that would be invaluable to every single CEO and business around the world that I operate with. They need that kind of framework. So, in just a, a, a thumbnail sketch of your MACA abbreviation, why is that framework so helpful? Just just talk us through it, would you, Stuart? So probably, even when I was at Barclays, and clearly what I do now, work with over 50 Fortune FTSE companies. And when I sit on an on-site, it might be like Invesco out in Georgia, and I listen to all the seniors talk and hear about their challenges. And it doesn't matter whether it's Invesco, Badcock, Carlsberg. All organizations need six things. And the mecha mnemonic is a way of remembering. And they're principles. So first one is that mission purpose, that clarity of organizational intent, which flows as an unambiguous narrative, top to bottom, CEO, call operator, machine operator. And the important thing, everyone knows their part in the plan. Then the E which I used to sort of think was really about empowerment. It's actually about equipping people to be empowered. You can't empower people unless they have the tools and the skill sets to deliver the mindset of empowerment. And then the first C is you've got to communicate. And while the commercial world is full of very gifted people, I don't think that they are particularly adept communicators often. Yet every corporate communicator because they communicate in a framework a commonality and precision of language structured for ease of assimilation by the recipient and with a right of reply which is really important to iron out that ambiguity and then the second c sounds obvious collaboration across silos passes proper collegiate activity breaks through those silos but also was harnessing that diversity of thought, which is so important, absolutely nails concrete accountability. Who's doing what, when, with who? And then the A is all about decision-making because it's agile decision-making and planning and the ability to pivot. And then the R, and it's the foundation, if you like, for all of this, is right behaviours, which boil down to a defined leadership, 
what type of leadership do we want in this organization? We'll talk about that later, maybe. And codified culture. But if culture is about actions and behaviors, think about it. The logic is there. That means decisions sit behind those actions and behaviors. If you have no decision-making framework, which all of your key decision-makers in an organization have to make, I would argue your culture is not as strong as you think, particularly when you are under pressure. Brilliant. Uh, lovely. And there's so much there. I'm sure people listening would like to know more and they'll reach out and uh, get in touch. And during your time, you've had the chance to work with some fabulous leaders, uh, in, certainly in the military, uh, and one or two sort of well-known household brands in business, not necessarily uh, they might be famous, but they weren't particularly great leaders. They were well-known, but not necessarily great. But if you were to pick out two uh, inspiring leaders uh, that you want to talk about that you've uh, you've known and you've worked with, who who would you choose? Vladimir Zelensky has got to be up there, yeah. <laughs> Go back to that mecha mnemonic, yeah? He's on point. He's on mission. He knows what he wants to have done, yet he empowers his people. So all those small bands initially of Ukrainian, very brave, often citizen soldiers running around, nailing those tanks with those anti-tank weapons, that was about empowering people. And he wasn't saying, be at this he just said, stop the tanks. And that's what his commanders were doing. So incredibly empowered. He's a great communicator. Probably helps that he was a comedian. <laughs> I think that's probably a great quality to be a good politician. So, and look at the way he dresses. He's not in a suit. He's in combat fatigue. He'll turn up at NATO summits, G7s, G8s, G9s, whatever. And he's there in his military T-shirt. So he's constantly on mesh message mission purpose and he's inspirational and he has that moral courage he stood up to the russians he's dragged often the west somewhat reluctantly in support has all of these credentials he'd be my number one for me mm -hmm. i just um, stay stay with him for a minute i had richard dannett on a while ago and i asked richard whether he thought the russians were going to invade ukraine it was it was a, a couple of weeks before they did he, he was hoping and believing that they might blink and they wouldn't do it. Obviously, they did. And I was listening to an interview with a submarine commander who was asked about the submarine visiting the Titanic, and he said he really hoped that the noises of the knocking, they might find someone. And sadly, of course, they all had died. So I'm conscious that asking you to predict the future is one of the worst things. But what do you think, in a, in a few words, what do you think is going to happen with the Ukrainian war? How, how is it going to end? I think is that the and Henry Kissinger said this right from the get go. There will be hopefully a negotiated settlement that will stop the fighting, stop the killing, but it will have to probably see some surrender of territory to the Russians, because you've got to understand the Russian mindset and the position Putin is in. Clearly, very wrongly, but you can't ignore realpolitik. Um, he cannot be pushed back to his borders and somehow the Russian state survive in a way without doing something very worryingly, which would create instability for the rest of it. Um, but I think Zelensky probably has got that, but he's going to make sure that he's negotiating from the position of absolute strength. Mm. 
in a position where the Russians realize they've got to come to the table. They can't sustain it anymore. Um, and yeah, it's a compromise. But if it's going to start killing, if it's going to draw a line where, I mean, we'll always be concerned about Russia because you can guarantee that however this ends, they're going to say never again. And they'll be on a massive rearmament program to modernize their armed forces. So I think, sadly, they are always going to be a threat in the, the near to longer term to uh, regional and probably Western European security. Um, we haven't helped ourselves because we ignored the Russians. Yeah. After the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm listening to a fascinating book called Spies, which is about the last hundred years. It's a great read. Uh, and that we were naive. And during the Second World War, we stopped spying on Russia. I mean, you know, the like, biggest gentlemen don't open each other's mail was, was the statement. And that was when Stalin upped massively. He did more spying on us than he did on Germany. Yeah, yeah. More spying on us and on America. And obviously they nicked our, as you've watched that, that fabulous film, uh, Oppenheimer, where, you know, the British um, scientist was a Russian spy that went in there. And there were a number of Americans who were working for the Russians, probably about two, three hundred uh, Americans who were Russian spies. And so uh, we're always going to have this problem with Russia. Yeah. We are always going to have this problem with Russia. Um, that's a, a fascinating one. Okay. So Zelensky... And, and just, just on that, if I may, Jonathan, there's a brilliant book by Mark Colotti. It's a short history of Russia. And he makes this point that you personalise Russian politics at your peril. That's what I think he's saying. Because he's saying that given the almost paranoia historically the Russians have about their borders, integrity, Napoleon, Hitler, and beyond and wider than that, he is virtually saying... It's not Putin, it's Catherine the Great, it's Ivan the Terrible, it's Stalin, it's Lenin. Putin is behaving the way Russian leaders often behave, particularly when they feel threatened and they're ignored by the West. And mm. I think that's probably the most salient, if you like, macro strategic leadership lesson that we should take away uh, yeah. from this appalling situation that we face um, on our eastern borders at the moment. Yeah. And and we've got an armed forces that have been whittled away to practically nothing uh, when we're actually at the most dangerous time in, in my lifetime, I think, as far as the threats from Russia and, yeah, from, yeah, absolutely. and, from, and from China. Um, and it, it's going to be very interesting talking to the, the Australian submarine commander about how the they, they're very pleased they've got nuclear powered submarines. But but there are hundreds of Chinese submarines yeah, yeah. out there in the seas around them. Um, of people you know, David Richards was one. You were his military assistant, which is one of the top jobs that uh, officers at that stage of their career get. What was that experience like and, and what was he like as a leader? Uh, from an experience point of view, it was very good for me because uh, I had to work in an MOD, so government environment, uh, lots of frictions and challenges, very strategic, great fun to work with David Richards. And, and that, you know, that's a really important point that if people enjoy working with you and sometimes you know you can be a hard taskmaster but if generally they enjoy working with you um because they're fun to work with uh he was very decisive he had clear direction but he was very much right Stuart you go and get the detail yeah and I would then work with his directs because I was lieutenant colonel his directs were brigadiers so much more senior to me um so good for me to really think about how you become diplomatic in that what is really a chief of staff role but I also saw David Richards as someone with real moral integrity. 
Um, we had some really difficult challenges about decisions to make about restructuring the army, highly political, which they always are, particularly when uh, famous uh, cat badges and regiments are involved. And there was some prevarication. There was a solution, but it was very contentious because other services didn't like it. I won't go into the detail of it. And I saw David Richards get up and go and see the Secretary of State and drag some of the people who were foot dragging over this and just explain why this had to be done. A huge career risk to himself because he wasn't head of the army. He was the chief of staff or chief operating officer of the army. And it wasn't the CEO went. And there were some reasons for that. David just got up and did it. And he locked in, which was right for the army, but could have gone badly wrong for him. It didn't because he then went on to become chief of the defence staff, etc. But that's partly because he was a ballsy commander and was prepared to reckon and risk. But he took people with him with a very clear vision and he empowered them and he expected them to to stand up. Um, and, yeah. and he was a laugh. He was good fun. Yeah. Um, and that he was when he was – you were working with when he was chief of the general staff, the head of yeah, the army. Was, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, uh, sorry. Actually, he was assistant chief of the general staff. And there is right. a nuance there. Effectively, that makes him chief of staff, that's chief operating yeah. officer of the army. CEO is chief of staff, uh, uh, chief of the general staff. Yeah, I know it's all a bit sort of... Right, I and, get it. Yeah, what a fascinating role, because I was the ADC, the, the assistant, the bag carrier to the chief of the general staff, which at the time was uh, Field Marshal the Lord Inge. Um, and his assistant chief was um, uh, a Royal Irish Ranger um, with a W think of his name in a minute um but anyway was that roger wheeler roger wheeler and he had um uh, a very good uh ma who worked with him fascinating role yeah i could see that okay so with the kind of experience that you had um you know y- you ended up becoming the co3 para in this um operation a peace support operation, which I think, I think, if I remember the statistics, over half a million rounds fired, about five hundred Taliban killed, fifteen of your own, including a Victoria Cross winning and a, uh, a George Cross winner uh, killed, and and about forty five injured. I mean, it was it was war, all out war. Uh, what what do you think now when you look back over that time? You know, God, uh, you know, hindsight's a great skill, but knowing what you know now, how would you have approached that all that time ago if you knew what you know now? I think what is significant is we were the first combat unit to be sent into southern Afghanistan, the, the start of the British commitment, proper full commitment to Afghanistan. And quite quickly, and this is a view I still hold, is I've always believed the intent in Afghanistan was absolutely right. The concept was wrong. We should have put the level investment, which we started doing about three years after I was there, around about 2009, we should have been doing that in 2001, 2002. And not just military and security, but all that eco-political support to really start building up the Afghan economy and society and all the rest of it. Because remember, in 2001, the Taliban were pushed out with American and British special forces and Afghan forces. And that would have been the time to put Macworld, if you like, into Afghanistan. And then I think, round about now, some 30 years later, I think we would have integrated Afghanistan into the normal 
community of nation states, if you like. Taliban may still be involved, but they'll be involved in a very different way. Never liberal democracy, but something which was stable, better for regional and international security, and definitely better for the Afghan people, which is really important. But the trouble is, by the time we recognise we need to put those resources in, and we never put perhaps enough in, particularly on the non-military point of view, well, David Cameron was already talking about withdrawing in. Mm. 2014 and so were the americans so the taliban were just going to say well we'll just keep this running you're going to go and then we'll flood back and funny old thing that's exactly what happened so in terms of my personal views around and maybe part of the question is you know do with hindsight do i regret what we did no absolutely not because there's that contextual view secondly soldiers join the military professional soldiers and we were all professional volunteers to go on operations and be tested and that's exactly what happened. Uh, but that's a very personal view. Um, so I regret nothing. And I've done it all again. Yes, I might have done it differently. Um, definitely would have wanted a lot more resources, which we're always asking for. But if you asked the mother of um, Corporal Mark Wright, who won a George Cross, or the rife Lorena Baird of, of um, Corporal Bud, who won a Victoria Cross, they would have a very different view. Yeah. Mm, mm. Or if you had both your legs blown off or your husband or your brother or whoever. Uh, yeah. That, uh, you're going to have a very uh, different view. And I completely respect that. Of course I do. You know, I had this community of wounded um, and their families and then the families of the killed or action. So I saw all of that um, and had to um, quite rightly get very involved and very close with all of those people, which was, you know, not easy. That's pretty tough. Um but always being on point, always being there, fighting for getting the resources they needed, etc. So they would probably have very, very different views. Yeah. Um, but the real hindsight view is uh, intent was right, concept was wrong, we did it too late. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just want to uh, acknowledge uh, the huge effort that you've put in after your time on those operations when you when you had so many killed and injured on those bloody battles that were being fought in these platoon bases and company bases. And um, you went to a lot of personal time, effort and care to go and see the people in Selyok where the conditions were awful uh, and fight for the kind of things that Richard Dannett, who I knew well, was fighting for to get more support, help for heroes and organizations like that. And you set up, um, the uh, the the Afghan Trust uh, and raised uh, a number of million to help those who were injured. I just want to acknowledge what you've done because you saw the horrors of war just as much as you saw the the heroes of war, and it it destroys people's lives. Um, it, it has a sort of seeping uh, effect, and I think at the time you and others got a groundswell of public support for what's going on, which the military hadn't had for many years when they realized just the sacrifice that were being made. Anything you'd like to say? I think that the, uh, the important thing was recognizing that, look, being a soldier is about risk, isn't it? Yeah. You reckon on risk and you put yourself in a harm's way and bad stuff happens. I have no problem with that. That's what professional soldiers sign up to do. But when you get broken, 
then the grateful nation should look after you. And that clearly did not happen in 2006 and had not been happening for a while. And a lot of really good people like Richard Dannett, David Richards was heavily involved, you know, got behind the outcry, which was really driven also by the public. But it was just the right thing to do. And I've always been staggered by people who weren't doing stuff, who might have done more. Um, and I found that very difficult to fathom. You know, if you're sitting in a, um, you know, excuse my French, but a, a shitty little married quarter with one of your soldiers who's been shot through the neck. So he's a C4 paraplegic. He's living in the front room. You know, everything is into a colostomy bag. Uh, his fiance, and when they got engaged, was able-bodied, is now a full-time carer. Um, the house absolutely smells because of the situation they're in. And both of them are in tears because stuff just hasn't been done. Um, that makes you really angry. And, you know, it made me pretty angry, but it also made me hopefully do something. And we did for um, for Paddy and Melanie. You know, we, we did improve things for them. I mean, we could never give Paddy the use of his legs and arms back. But, you know, we ended up buying a mobility vehicle for him because, you know, we went to the authorities and said we need X, Paddy needs a mobility vehicle, and they said there's no money. We spent it on other things, which were not welfare-orientated. So that was the makings of the Afghanistan Trust, and not my idea. Someone else's idea said, well, why don't we just raise the money for Paddy ourselves? So a few people ran some marathons and all the rest of it. Um, you know, the rest is history. You know, we needed to raise, I think, sort of six, seven, eight, maybe £10,000. And then by the time the Afghanistan finished, we'd raised nearly more than £4 million. And that obviously went across helping the regiments wounded. Um, mm. So look, it was just the, it was just so obviously the right thing to do. Mm. No, but and, with the help of lots of other really good, like-minded people. And, and this is a theme that runs through those who've served in the military about doing the right thing. It doesn't necessarily follow so much... Um, those in business um people are prepared to do whatever it takes to get what they want and that normally involves around money but there's some good intended people what has been your experience from military to business where you you have found good inspiring leaders in business what what qualities stand out for you because we can easily point that the, the ones who are not inspiring they're expiring leaders they yeah, yeah. suck the life out of you but when you've come across good people in business what what sort of stands out for you I think the first thing I, I, I would say, I'm going to slightly um, caveat my answer. So if anyone thinks I'm saying just because you've been in the military, you'll be a great leader. I'm not saying that. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I think the advantage is that you come out with professional training. Every officer does 12 months before they go anywhere in a team with another six months added onto that. And that's something that the commercial world cannot replicate. But the military does provide a very powerful learning perspective, which why wouldn't you want to harness the investment that they've made? I mean, not least, and we were chatting earlier, but, you know, there are three challenges out there, aren't there? Dizzying pace of technological change, the proliferation of non-traditional actors in your market space, the disruptors, and the increasing conduct regulatory media scrutiny. Well, the military's been dealing with those, just as the commercial world has, but the commercial world has probably been only focused on really since the turn of the century, maybe credit crunch. The military has been framing its response for hundreds of years. So why wouldn't you at least want to consider it as this powerful perspective? And then to answer your question precisely, and forgive me for meandering a bit, but um, who stands up? 
in in the commercial world people i work for um people who are good communicators they engage uh, they want to know what they're doing now i've worked for some some people i've come to respect as my bosses but when i have a chat with them and you know someone wants something you know, what do you think my leadership style and i said well x you should engage more it's one of the important ease engaging of leadership so, so for example you walk past her every day what's my pa's name couldn't tell me and i said x who was a woman you walk past this other woman for 18 months and you don't know her name yeah the power of just stopping and saying, hello, Andrea, how was your day? How was your weekend? Massive. But those leaders who do engage have time for people. And the first chief operating officer at Barclays, lovely guy called David Skillian, an Aussie. Um, what I noticed about him was when I started to build my immediate team and I'd go up and I'd take one of the guys with me because they'd have more information than I did. So I'd get them to the presentation. He would always stop and say, hey, John, welcome to the bank. Where do you come from? And have five minutes with them, not with me, with them. And so the ability to engage, the ability to be clear of here's the direction, but I need to empower you to make the journey because I can't do it all myself and then reward and congratulate people for doing that. But also having the moral courage not to walk past things and call things out, really important as well. Very difficult to do if you don't have a decision-making framework. See it the whole time, yeah? Yeah. People would often call me and go, oh, God, it's a really difficult decision to do, usually around an HR issue. And I'd go... Okay, go through your decision cycle. What's the situation you're facing? What's the mission that you're trying to achieve? What are the key effects which relate to that? How do you task and resource and prioritize each of those effects? How do you risk control it? What have you missed? What could go wrong? What contingency do you build around it? How do you frame the final decision? You score up against objective success criteria. So the best idea in the room really wins. Then you've got to do your communication. Final step, seven steps, key questions you ask yourself. That's when you can have those difficult conversations with individuals and make those really difficult calls. Brilliant, brilliant. No, I, I think it's definitely needed, definitely needed. Coming back to, to you from, from your time in the military and your time in, in business and advising business leaders, looking back on the whole of your life, what was the darkest moment in your life and what did it teach you that, that will help those listening? Well, that's a difficult one. Um, okay. From a purely professional leadership perspective, not anything particularly personal or domestic. Um, on the 6th of September, 2006, we had a series of events, which we called the day of days. Yep. Suddenly I had 24 people trapped in a minefield, um, people having their legs blown off, one guy bleeding to death, and we couldn't get them out, and we couldn't get the resources we needed. We did manage to get them out, and that day George Cross and various other gantry medals were won. And I remember walking back into my operations room, and I'd been down to the field surgery hospital that we had in our camp, which was operating full tilt, like a butcher shop. And I was exhausted. It was probably about three o'clock and been at this since, you know, in the morning. And then I was suddenly told we've now got multiple casualty situations in two district centres holding one called Muscala, one called Sangin. Every time we went in there, helicopters nearly got shot down, more people got hit and all the rest of it. And we had to work these things out. And both initial attempts to get our casualties out 
serious head wounds, people hit by mortars, people hit by snipers. Um, there's a golden hour. You manage to evacuate casualties with an hour. They're best chance of survival. We're beyond the hour because all these risks we're facing. So just pressure upon pressure of things wrong. And we eventually got our casualties out. Some we did not get to in time. Four of my soldiers died that day and another 18 had life-changing injuries. And a couple of things stand out from that day. So I remember at one point, and the team were doing a brilliant job in the operations room trying to coordinate things. It was massively complex. And the ability to say, right, folks, just stop. Let's pause. Frameworks. Let's reevaluate, reevaluate, review situation. Where are we? Mission effects. Who's doing what? When? What have we missed? Clarify the decision. Communicate. Let's go. That steadying down, and you suddenly realise every bugger in the room is looking at you, and you need to step in and make those interventions. That didn't mean that lots of people were doing stuff. I didn't need to get into the detail of. So that was the important thing. And then the second thing from that, and this is the power of having really good number twos the foils to you, my RSM, John Hardy, who is a remarkable and archetypical fucking paratrooper, basically, at the end of the day. Um, and he sort of leaned forward. And just after I said, so you need to go and have And bear in mind, I'm a man under pressure. And I'm suddenly being told by someone I need to go and have a shower. It's a sort of odd request. But because it came from Hardy, this guy I absolutely trusted. I thought, well, I need to listen to what he's telling me. And I looked at him quizzically and said, it's not major. Why am I having to have a chance? So you're covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Which is obviously not a good example of for everyone. And it was get yourself cleaned up and come back and probably take take 10. Go and have a condor moment. And because it came from this redoubtable, trusted individual, I went, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, probably felt like a 12-year board. Oh, okay, fine. And I went, <laughs> it was good. So having reset the this individual reset me. Yeah, and that's what kept us going. That's just you know one micro example, maybe two of that day. How we managed that day it was just constant. It just did not stop. I mean, I just can't imagine. And, and reading that in the book, it, it just it will always stay with me. Uh, uh, even just as some listening to the audio of it, I, I can't imagine what it was like for you and the others in that trapped in the minefield with people dying around you, uh, and the two bases sanging and. Muscle and and for those listening in business, they go, well, we don't get that. No one dies in our job, not unless something unfortunate, a car crash on the way to work. But what's the lesson for people? Is it is it back to having a simple framework when you're really under pressure and you're tired and there's multiple decisions to be made? Is that is that your main message? What else would you yes, say? Yes, yes, it is. And I'm, I'm, I'll bring that alive a little bit more. So we would use these seven steps we talked about. And um, we might spend three days planning a deliberate operation thousand odd troops, complexity of airspace management, busier than Heathrow, okay? And we would follow these steps. Suddenly, we had to pivot because we got a nasty ambush up in the Muscala defile or something. And we need to get forces there quickly because we had people missing in action and chaotic situation. We could complete the same decision-making, planning, execution cycle, seven steps, 45 minutes from a cold start, no prior information, and launched the same number of aircraft and troops, 45 minutes from bang, we've got a problem, to rotors turning, 750 men and women, 
flying out on operations to have an operational effect. Now, the point about that is the flexibility, highly practiced, highly formulaic, incredibly flexible, operated by all levels. That's when your organization can turn around. And the key thing was, and let's put it into commercial terms, we got ahead of the competition. The competition always got the chance to react first often because they were insurgents, guerrillas. They could fire at us. They wore civilian clothes. They hid in the civilian population. But our speed of decision-making and responding inside their decision loop and often dislocated them. So not just superior firepower, superior thinking. So you take that to a commercial view. If you can apply those frameworks in the commercial world, you think of the market opportunities there because we can turn around quickly. And in today's environment, post-cost living, supply chain problems, war in the East, it's coming at you like this. And if you're a business that can't operate at that pace, your long-term survivability or certainly profitability has got to be in question. Yeah, there's that famous quote from Jack Welsh, who has been quite a lot discredited by those who work closely with him in GE, but he had his moments of glory. But a quote which he said, which I think is very supportive of what you just said, when the rate of change on the outside is faster than the rate of change on the inside of your business, the end is near. And I think it's a very apt one. Um, Stuart, in your upbringing and, you know, training and getting you to this position as a leader you are today, um, let's go back to when you were sort of 16 to 18 and thinking of other people who are that sort of stage now. What bit of advice, all the wisdom and experience, mistakes you've made, the successes you've had, the the good leaders you work with, what bit of advice would you give to your younger self, Stuart, age 16 to 18? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that don't do this, Stuart. That's really not a good idea. But do this matters. Spend more time on that. What yeah, yeah, what, yeah. what would you stop and what would you start? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, well, how long you got? Um, okay, to, to, to be more precise, I think it's everyone needs a plan. Yeah. But the important thing is that plan has got to have options. And then apply something which works every time the maxim that time spent in reconnaissance bothering to go and look and explore and experiment is seldom wasted and if you've got options and i always think if you've got a good plan b plan a often works yeah don't stake everything on one thing yes of course be determined be committed whatever but go and explore other things you know the amount of times i you know, find myself sort of saying, God, why didn't I just do that on the get-go? It took me a while to get there. Um, but listening and learning, and, and funny enough, I've got friends, sons who are now young officers, and I'm a mentor to one or two of them. And they're, you know, they're in their early 20s, and, and they were talking to me before when they were teenagers. And one of the great things, which I don't think we had, there's just more accessibility to people now. So go and find out, go and find out what it's like to be an investment banker, if that's what you want to do, or, you know, a clinician somewhere or a soldier, whatever it might be. Um, so going out and exploring, listening to people and then listening to people who are just ahead of you is really important. Yeah, because mm. they're the real sales people, aren't they, of whether a profession is worth following or not. Um, great, great advice. Great advice. Great advice. Let's do a quick whiz around the Inspiring Leadership Compass, which is a framework that my wife and I use. And in our experience, we found that's a sort of, again, sort of principles about what makes inspiring leaders. But there's so many models out there. There's many thousands. But this we find 
particularly helpful. Um, firstly, the moral component. Um, what did you learn when you let your own values slip? Because you're obviously a man of high values, but what did you learn when you let your own values slip? And what's your tip to others listening when they do? That's a very good question. And actually, it's probably not an easy one to answer. Um, and of course, we all let ourselves down, don't we? Um, I think recognising it, recognising it for what it is. Um, I mean, the tool we use a bit in what I do now, which I think is really powerful, we used every time in 3PAT, is a thing called an after-action review, an AAR. Every time we did something significant, good or bad, we would workshop through it together, re-scenario run it, and we would learn the lessons. And it became very transparent. And I suppose when I think I've done something I'm not terribly proud of, and I'm human like everyone else, having that tool set, that I, and I do a little after-action review, well, why did I do it? Because sometimes you can be too unkind to yourself when you do something that you're not very pleased with afterwards. You know, Was it because of pressure? Was it because of... I don't know, some form of hubris, whatever it was, and then learn, because actually that's the important thing. You know, this is what I found. If you want to empower your people, you've got to allow them to experiment. That means they're going to make mistakes, okay? And if they're frightened of making mistakes, they're not going to be empowered. So with the after-action review process, whether it's self, whether it's in somewhere like Afghanistan, one of the things I found with my commanders was they felt very guilty when they made a decision and someone lost their life. And bearing in mind, I was three, four years older than these guys. I was, you know, in my late 30s. They were in their mid to, to um, young 30s. Um, I had a little bit with more wisdom and experience, perhaps. So I'd sit down with them. The first thing I need to do is to leave out that girl and say, hey, I'm the commanding officer. I'm the guy who has to write to the next of kin and tell them that their son or their husband's not coming home. I then have to meet those families when we get back to UK. And crucially, I have to go to the coroner's court and account for why British citizens have been killed. That's my responsibility. Yeah, I'm the owner. I'm the decision maker. But what I need you to do is, first of all, get that because accountability, mutual trust, it cuts both ways. Of course it does. So the ability to then turn around and say, okay, so you understand I have got your back. Now I need you to focus on your leadership. Do your after action review. Let's do it collectively. Let's do, do it as your team, however we do it, because I want you to learn from those mistakes. And I want you to be transparent about it, not blame. Let's learn and let's share because collectively we'll get better together as a team and, and our performance will improve. And if you've learned something which is critically important, maybe it's a weapons or systems failure or a process failure, let's learn the lesson because I don't want another company to make that same mistake. Okay. And, and actually, in a way, let's celebrate you for calling this out. Yeah. Uh, very useful process. And uh, and also this idea of self-compassion and also responsibility and accountability. Uh, people often use them interchangeably, but what's the Stuart approach to explaining in layman's terms the difference between responsibility and accountability and how they interact? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's different, difficult because they're, they're often interchangeable. Um, and people use sort of racy templates uh, which have their place, I suppose. I think the accountability is who goes to court. Who goes to court, who loses their job. Responsibility is probably a more grown-up expression in a way because it has a greater moral application and lens to it. So, for example, 
if one of my soldiers fired his weapon in Afghanistan and called, killed a civilian, and tragically, we killed civilians because it's unavoidable to, 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 to operate in that environment. Um, but there was something wanton about this. This was erroneous. Sorry, I need to be a little bit more precise here. This wasn't the fog of war. You thought you saw a threat. You engaged. Sadly, it happened to be a non-combatant. This is a lack of discipline. This is doing something you should not have done that then resulted in the loss of civilian life. Okay, that individual is accountable, and maybe some of the chain of command are accountable. But ultimately, I'm responsible. Why did that happen? Did I not put enough training in place? Did I not make sure whether it was me or my directs or their directs uh, were adding enough supervision to that? Did we not spot something? Did we walk past something in someone's character behavior? I'm not talking about a specific example because I had no issues in my battle group where tragically when these events happened that I thought they were wrong. They should not have done that. Um, they were all situations where there was a situational understanding context that people acted in good faith. That's what I'm saying. So I didn't have anyone who acted in bad faith. I'm just using an example, but if I did, accountability sits at different ends to responsibility. And it's grey sometimes, and it merges. But that sense of I'm responsible leader for checking that you are going to do things you're accountable for, but the accountability is if you don't do them, you will fall by yeah, no. great. That's, it's, it's very helpful that, you know, the accountability who goes to court and responsibilities, ultimately the the boss, the CEO, the the CO. Um, purpose is the, the next one. And it, it's, mission purpose is very much big uh, part of your uh, mnemonic and your, your six principles. But what gives your life purpose and meaning now, Stuart, in the work you're doing, helping all these different corporations around the world? Uh, as a leadership consultant and advisor? So I think you have to, you have to have your mission. It sounds a bit glib, doesn't it? You know, what are you trying to achieve and why? You know, that, that important question of why are you doing this? What are your objectives? You know, there's probably something around there about making a living, looking after your family. Um, it's a bit of a throw expression, say, to add value, but... <sighs> It's not really so much the paycheck, which was very nice when, when you're paid for helping a business turn around. It's that genuine appreciation of what you've done, yeah, that people are following up and saying, you've significantly improved my quarter one results in a failing business. We wouldn't have done that without Mecca. That, and unfortunately, the um, the contract may have ended with them. They're not mm. any more money out but actually yeah. that's hard because sometimes you ask yourself, you know, am I making a difference? So when you get that feedback, that is really important. So having a job that has a bit of a, a bit of a zing to it. Yeah. Uh, and don't get me wrong. I mean, it's not all sweetness and honey because sometimes you're going, well, you know, where is the next buck coming from? Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. Giving up uh, a nice big flat corporate salary, but it's, and so someone said this to me the other day, I, I've, I might have to make a decision about a really exciting opportunity, which clearly I'm not going to talk about, but I'm about to go sailing on my boat, um, which is a passion that I have, and it's a, it's a fairly recent passion. And I may not be able to go because this significant opportunity might come in. 
And what I enjoyed was when this person said, what is your availability? We might need to move quite fast. I thought, you know what? And I said to them, I said, I'm my own boss. I'm my own skipper. If we need to change plans, we will change our plans to be boots on the ground with you on Monday. So what we do. Now I'm going to have to manage that because I'm going to have some disappointed people. But that's my job. Mm. But it's that clear rationale. Why am I doing that? Don't give me that. Do I want to give up two weeks sailing and hopefully the weather's going to be pretty good? No, I don't. But at the same time, I'm doing it for a reason. But I recognize the impacts on that. that I'm going to have to manage some other people's expectations and maybe yeah. work harder in a few other departments. So I think having, again, you know, it comes down to this framework of why you're doing something. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the mission purpose. And and running, I I often will be quite passionate about something. And I'll stop myself and go, let's go and do those seven steps. And sometimes mm. I suddenly realize I shouldn't be as excited as I am because mm. I've seen other factors which mitigate. You know, I don't suddenly make a crazy investment decision or, you know, buy that house, which I thought was a dream house. Do my seven steps. It's not quite the dream house for a whole host of reasons. Very good. Very good. The seven steps. And um, the other thing you alluded to, the sailing uh, we've talked about, uh, you and I talked before we started about how uh, as you're getting uh, approaching your 60s, but not there for another three years, and I'm into my 60s, that we've got to look after our health and our well-being throughout our lives. But we're now realizing that as the um, the head of the PT Corps said to Jim Bashel, a, a mutual friend of ours, um, as he was a retired general, that, you know, there's a lot of inflammation caused by running in later life. And while we did it when we were young men with a pack on our back down Long Valley, um, now is not a good time. I had a run with the dogs this morning, but it wasn't more than about two or three miles. And I'm not into doing the marathons I used to do. And I do hit training and weights and and yoga and those kind of things. What do you do for your your top tip for people at, at our stage about, and at any stage really, but about the health and well-being, look after your physical health, and your mental health, particularly after what you've been through in your yeah. career. Um, so I to any, and I'll be gender specific, men, but I think it applies to women as well, is when you approach your 40s, particularly if you do lots of running and you think you're quite fit, do not neglect your core. Because that's exactly what I did. You know, two decades, probably, you know, I ran marathons when I was at the bank and stuff like that, pounding on the pavements of London. And uh, so I thought, you know, I'm 47. I've just done my last marathon. Um, I think I'm pretty fit. I hit 50 and I slipped a disc really badly. Um, and you suddenly think, disabled. You know, I can't tie up my shoelaces. I can't have a shower on my own. And I am not sleeping most nights. Um, so I'm absolutely exhausted. And the big lesson there was I'd neglected my core. Because now I don't. Seven years on, I do something on my core virtually every day. Yeah, sometimes I did it you know, half an hour or so, and I did a bit more yesterday, a bit more over the weekend, etc. Um, But it's having that, don't get bored by your physical activity. So I do different things. And I, you know, I do Pilates, not massive amounts of it, but I'll go, well, that's really interesting. And my mind is more open to what out what is out there. Don't get me wrong, I've got probably have lots of unhealthy habits. But um, definitely, if I'm having a grim day, and we have grim days, don't we? If I can just stop what I'm doing and whether it is going for a run or going to the gym or getting a swim in, I'm a different person. Yeah. Afterwards, I come back refreshed. Often it's uh, writing a book and you suddenly get writers, but how do I move this chapter ahead? This really important thing. And I'll struggle and I'll agonize on it and then go for a run, take the dog out, do whatever, change your environment 
increase your heartbeat and it will give you that distraction theory theory or opportunity experience whatever you want to call it and you are a different person when you come back to face that problem again you're so right and and uh, i i really support everything you say particularly around uh breaking through when you're a bit stuck um i i'm big into wearable technology I've got this aura ring that i wear i've got my apple watch i'm now about to get a, a whoop band which i used to have many years ago to record stress levels and also the quality of sleep and i even went to one of these sleep studies uh at uh the Papworth, the Royal Papworth Hospital, where they recorded me overnight and watched me with video cameras to see how my sleep was. Um, so I think it's really great that you're looking after that. But as people say, you can't outrun a bad diet. So what, you know, and there's a lot of studies now about the microbiome and what you put into yourself and, and how you can avoid many of the major illnesses. So people's health span tends to, yeah. in this country, end 10 years before their lifespan ends. What are you doing to look after your um, your the food you eat and the microbiome and and feeding it and smoking and drinking? Do you smoke and drink? You because I always saw the picture of the uh, the yeah, you, yeah, that, yeah. that great photograph is you yeah, with the no, cigarette. Yeah. Always well, that's my that's my biggest sin. I'm occasional, you know. I still like the old uh, the old cigarette. Great leveler, great leveler with people. Um, clearly, if they smoke, <laughs> I'm not advertising it because it's clearly very very bad for your health. Um, yeah, I do occasionally have a cigarette. Um, some people ride motorbikes. Yeah. Some people do all sorts of things. Some people work in very, very stressful jobs. Yeah. Which might terminate their life before my, my nicotine habit, as you raised it, um, rather unhelpfully. Um, Funny enough, I don't drink that much, uh, partly because I find as you get older, and apparently there's some study out there that says something changes in your brain, your tolerance for alcohol changes. So, you know, if I and I, and I really enjoy a couple of pints with my mates every now and again, um, but it doesn't make me feel as good as it used to, and it's harder to work off. So I just tend to avoid it, you know. I'll have a different drink, you know, unless, you know, the environment's right, especially, you know, after a hard sale or something. Um, and then just food, just balanced out. I don't eat a lot of junk food. I'm going to do occasionally if, you know, I'm grabbing something from a motorway cafe because I have to. Um, don't really enjoy it, but it's just food and it's functional. Um, so I think having time to just eat properly, I think we probably eat more than we really need to. Um, mm. You know, um, I avoid, if I can, you know, having sort of big lunches because I'd much rather just, you know, I don't know, get a salad or something like that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, balanced art, healthy things. Don't smoke, everybody. It's not a good thing to do. But then, you know, there are lots of other things that are not good for you as well. <laughs> Great. Well, look, we're in our last few minutes, Stuart. Um, uh, just two questions and then we'll do the top tip. Uh, executive teams. Um, you, you're working with so many different executive teams around the world. How do they turn around a toxic team or then there's a toxic individual in their team? What What's your top brief tip to them? So it's process answer again. Um, so step one of the seven step we talked about, getting situational awareness. And I remember doing a piece of work with HSBC, um, not because there was anything toxic going on, but it was the combining of their back office to their middle office. And they described it as we have this clash of civilizations. I completely understand. And we sat everyone down, start the seven steps. And the first step is, look, here's step one. Yeah, we're going to put all the environmental factors on the table and make deductions from them. We're going to test all the assumptions as well. And the outcome of this 
is not to resolve the problem, but to gain a shared consciousness of what the problem is, even if you all disagree or with each other. You know, Jonathan and Stuart disagree, but they never had this conversation. So that step, driving those crucial conversations, yeah? Understand what the frictions are in the team. And they said this was one of the most powerful things. Before the mission analysis and the effects to be achieved and all that other good stuff, getting everyone on the same page of what they're trying to do and what the problem is and the differences. Because you literally heard people say, well, Maria, I, I never understood you felt so strongly about that regional to global to centralised tension. Okay, great. Deduction, you need to think about that in your planning and your decision making. But unless you have those crucial conversations, which again, you know, people find difficult to have, you won't start beginning to frame what you might do to relieve something like a toxic problem. And I'm not necessarily saying, because you're going to have to be smart about this, but if you're responsible for turning around a team, you know, one of the things I did with another team and another bank was I said, look, I'll, I'll come and do this for you, this workshop, but um, I would like to be able to talk to, and you tell me who to talk to, as many members of your team as I could, and that's exactly what I did. And it framed my approach because I got their views, how I tempered the workshop, etc. Um, but it also allowed me to begin to have the conversations that initially they were not prepared to have with this individual, you know, and said, you have a perception of yourself. And I've had this before in my own leadership situation. It's not a perception that is necessarily shared by other people. You may think you're very open as a leader and your door is open. And, and you generally believe that the door is open. I don't mind who comes in. But the junior person who has the critical information, they just don't see it. They don't think that. They don't have the bravery, if you like, to come in. And mm. sometimes I've found, definitely in fire drills, I've, I've had in the bank. And I got very upset about having a fire drill because I thought we were green, green, green. And now we're suddenly red a week before the audit was due to be closed. And it's, you know, required me to really roll up my sleeves and get it done. And yet one of the assistant vice presidents, AVP, knew about it all along. Why did they not come into my office and tell me? And their boss tells me and say, you may think you're you're open. I don't think that person does. Okay, mm. after action view, lesson learned here. Rather than a bollocking, need to go and have a cup of coffee with that individual and say, come on, Simon, I didn't realise, you know, that I may be seen to be a bit unapproachable. Mm. What, what helps unlock that? And hopefully the coffee helps that. But it's a bit more of that of, you know, I don't know, you know, okay, fine. So the, the important thing is, it's that crucial conversations. It's the situation setting. That's the important bit. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, it's a very good, it's a very key step. And having these crucial, courageous conversations, I also find unlocks a situation. And indeed, like you, before any offsite, having interviews or even any psychometric feedback with each of the members of the team who are going to be there, they say things to me that when I summarize it in the round to the CEO, they goes, how did you find that out? I mean, not many people know that, but, oh, that's very interesting. I hadn't kind of worked that one out. And you go, but they said it to me. Are they not saying it to you? Clearly, they're not. Um, penultimate question. Favorite book. Why would you recommend a particular book to people? Well, I've, I, I've, I've, I've got two. So one is The Moon is Balloon by David Niven. Mm -hmm. um, it's a fantastic character. It's great fun, yeah. But, but but his life is one of, you know, this very famous Hollywood actor and all the rest of it. it it's full of tragedy. And it's how he 
dealt with some of that and came through and and very very humorous as well um you know um soldier who came a hollywood actor and then my other book which is a purely military book is by george mcdonald fraser called quartered safe out here and it's about a lance corporal story fighting in the war in burma in 1944 and it's really a story about him and six or seven other people and it's fascinating and george mcdonald fraser was also a bit of a comedian so hugely amusing but also very dark in places and there's one bit in it which really sings out about leadership and bear in mind this is a lance corporal um you know he's educated and he's bright but he's bottom of the food pile as terms of the rank structure comes and bill slim the general commanding the 14th army comes to give him a pep talk and he talks about good old bill and he talks about the confidence of this general who's dressed in the equivalent of their combat fatigues he's got an m4 carbine slung on his shoulder so he's not even standing there with big binocular i think he might have been nice but you know sort of montgomery type pose i'm a general you're the junior soldiers he said something like he stood there like one of us and he just gave him this mission purpose and that resonated and i remember thinking god and bill slim is you know a very very capable was a very very capable i think the best general one of the best generals in the second world war um but just captured and this is the whole thing how you are perceived by sometimes the most junior people is important mm. and bill slim nailed it to george mcdonald fraser because it's his own memoir of being a private and junior nco in the army fascinating and and that's just triggered for me uh when you were working for david richards um my job working for peter inge he would go and talk to his mentor who was bagnell field marshal nigel bagnell who was a green hair for a short while but then when he told the commanding officer he wanted to go to Staff College, the commanding officer was so pompous and old school. He went, Staff College? Staff College? Greenhards don't go to Staff College, old boy. So he joined the cavalry instead and went to Staff College and then became a general um, just to just to show them. But um, the Ginger Group was all his collection of smart, bright young men like uh, Richard Dannett and Rupert Smith, who's also been on this series, yeah. a para- paratrooper that you know well. and uh, and And this idea of bill slim and they they found old notes from bill slim which even then they were studying as head of the army and finding them still today his advice about the moral component and integrity and leadership are still relevant today not just the military but to business too so um would you kindly end the series uh or this talk today which has been fabulous Stuart, with your top leadership tip uh, two-minute top tip and just introduce yourself say who you are what you did before what you're doing now over to you my name's Stuart Tootle um I used to be a colonel and commanding officer in the parachute regiment I then spent 10 years working as a global head in Barclays and I now run my own consultancy consultancy uh really helping people with change agendas decision making and that type of thing and my top leadership tip is have a critical thinking decision-making framework which also includes agile planning methodology and tools and an empowered execution framework and if you don't have that toolkit and there are toolkits out there you can leverage and you need to decide uh, what is right for you 
which is repeatable, scalable, because it's not just you as a leader. It's got to be all those people you work with because you've got to empower them to make decisions. And empowerment is about equipping. If you don't have that toolkit around decision-making, planning and execution, you will never get that agility to respond to the market pressures and pace that we operate today. And you'll never get in that decision-making cycle of your competitors and you'll never have a strong culture, whatever you think when it comes under real pressure, because cultures, actions and behaviours. And if you do not have a decision-making framework in your company that sits behind that, then I would argue that your culture is fragile. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. It's been fabulous having you on this series. I do love having leaders who are now giving wisdom and advice to others based on not only their own experience, but all the wide reading that they do themselves. And you're clearly someone who's always learning and never too arrogant to think that you can't learn from other people. So it's been a real pleasure having you on the series. Thank you for sharing that. And and thank you for your wisdom and, and sharing with people around the world. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.